0: Welcome to The Common Bridge, where policy and current events are discussed in a fiercely nonpartisan manner. The host, Richard Helpy, is a philanthropist, entrepreneur, and columnist who has over a million listeners around the world. His podcast and YouTube shows draws guests and audiences across the political spectrum. Welcome to The Common Bridge. I'm your host, Rich Helpy. The Common Bridge, of course, on most podcast outlets and on YouTube TV. We are honored today to have a returning guest, a regular, Dr. James Baker from the University of Michigan. Uh, Dr. Baker is an immunologist, a physician, he's a researcher, publisher. His extensive background with pandemics and in leading vaccine efforts has been quite impressive. He is also the author of a great blog that I highly recommend, Pandemic. Pondering, pandemicpondering.com. Please register there. Dr. Baker is gracious enough to be making his fourth appearance on the Common Bridge. And recently, one of the local outlets for one of the big networks picked him up on a Sunday show. I'm not saying that's going to happen to all of our guests, but you never know. Uh, and with that, Dr. Baker, welcome to the Common Bridge. So glad to have you with us.
1: Well, thank you, Rich. I'm a little surprised I'm here for a fourth time. I think <laughs> when we started this, we had hoped that it would be a shorter period that we were dealing with it.
0: But. Yeah, yeah, it was like an acorn that just grew you know, from <laughs> yeah, there, and I'm not sure what it is now. But And that's what I'd like to talk about today, if you don't mind, just the this historic arc where we started this pandemic came up. Oh, it was bad bat. Somebody had a roast bat or something in China and then we just needed two weeks to bend the curve. Where are we today, and and what's ahead? Is there, kind of like if you said to encapsulate it, where are we today, or do we know?
1: So I think we have good experience for how pandemics pan out, if Mm I can use that. And uh, if you look at, for example, the flu pandemic of 1917, you have this huge upswing that we observed a year and a half ago, you know, in March in the U.S. Then you have sort of some waves as more people get involved, as different variants come around, and then you have a slow decline. And the slow decline basically comes as everyone in the population is exposed to the virus, or in this case, either exposed to the virus or vaccinated or both. So essentially we are in the downward phase But, you know, there are a couple of things that set this differently. The first is we have very different diagnostics. You know, during the flu pandemic, if you weren't dying from the flu, everything was okay. So essentially, we were looking at death as our downslope and knowing when the pandemic ended. Now we have very sensitive diagnostics, these PCR tests, that tell you even if you have a little virus in your nose. Mm -hmm. And most of the people that have immunity don't get ill. You know, 90% of the people in the hospitals now are unvaccinated people. But because we can detect this, we think they're still involved. And eventually what's going to happen is the illness component will go away as most people are exposed. We may still be able to detect virus in people's noses because we can do it very sensitively. But the clinical illness that's been sort of suffocating us is going to resolve.
0: So at some point, everybody's been exposed. And one pundit put it, everybody will either be vaccinated, recovered, or dead. Yes. That you're going to fall into one of those categories. It seems to me it's almost impossible for anyone in the world to have not been exposed. And I was told by some, what I thought were knowledgeable people, that a virus doesn't want to kill the host, so it might become more transmissible to live more places, but less deadly because it doesn't want to kill the host. Is there any truth to that at all?
1: So all viruses are a little bit different, and certainly viruses that are not easily transmitted don't want to kill their host because they need to be around and hang around a long time to be transmitted, sort of like sexual viruses that yes. don't transmit very effectively. You know, they will stay in your system, in some cases, lifelong. Respiratory viruses are a little bit different because they're spread very rapidly and they're spread probably most effectively with a huge burst of virus production that then gets aerosol. And in fact, in those cases, you know, that burst of viral production is often enough to kill people. But because they're transmitting, you know, the R value, you know, the number of people that get infected from one person is more than one. Even if the host dies, the virus lives and continues see. to propagate. So, in fact, you know, for a sexual virus, it may be less than one. So you have to have someone well enough to, to try and infect lots of people. Here if one person can infect multiple people even if that initial person dies the virus is expanding I,
0: I see okay that makes a lot of sense to me and therefore the notion of we needed to avoid big crowds and indoor spaces and things seems to make sense let's let's not let it expand but it, but i guess in that case would that mean that there would be a population outside of the vaccinated exposed or dead they would be basically New places for the virus to land.
1: Yeah. And in fact, that's what's happened in Michigan. Michigan was one of the most effective places in shutting down, in keeping people from being exposed early on. And, you know, we have many parts of the state, we have a fairly dispersed population as well. So there aren't as many opportunities for large spreader events as there are elsewhere. Mm -hmm. But what's happened is that, you know, lockdowns are really a temporary measure. I think of them as a bridge, and they need to be a bridge to something. Now, initially, the lockdowns were a bridge to make sure that our health systems weren't overwhelmed until we got something that took care of people more effectively. And my initial thought, that would be antiviral drugs, because small drug development is often faster than vaccine development. Yes, yes. As happened in this case, it was a bridge until we got effective vaccines. And once we got effective vaccines, we should have vaccinated everyone and been done with it. But the problem is in a place like Michigan, only about 50%, 54% of the population is completely vaccinated. Of that 54% of the non-vaccinated, most of them weren't exposed so there was no immunity from infection either so it's not like we had 54% you know vaccinated another 30% from from infection we had a huge you know uninfected population that was at risk great
0: right. they have, they weren't exposed and part of that un, unvaccinated 46% That would have been kids and younger people that weren't eligible for the vaccination.
1: Well, that's just the adult population. Oh, it's 54% of the
0: the eligible population. And the
1: children as well. So we're looking at a significant portion of the population that was unexposed. And that's what happened in March when they let down the restrictions. Yeah, we had this huge wave of infections because we had, at that point, probably only around forty percent of the population vaccinated, and lots of people got sick, lots of people died. So we had this wave that was different from the rest of the population, rest of the states, because we had done such a good job of protecting.
0: Right, but we, but there was—it's kind of the inevitability. It's, Absolutely, it, it sounds like so. I know the experience in other countries. Sweden's often cited as, you know, never closed schools, never shut down, protected the elderly and such, and now they're claiming that they're, ha- they're basically down to zero deaths week to week. Florida's taken a more open approach. Other places, think of Australia, has been very extreme, yet somehow the Omicron variant got there. In hindsight, what does it look like the public policy should have been? Or, or is it too early to tell?
1: Um, I, I think we can tell some things, you know, and, and I think the first thing is the public policy should have been based on the concept that we don't really know, mm-hmm. you know, and I don't think anyone in, you know, a public policy situation was willing to say that. And that's why you had recommendations like masks don't work at all. You know, we need to keep locked down all the time. You know, what's the distance between people you need? We did not really know these things. And in fact, they went from flu as their model, and flu is different from COVID. Mm -hmm. So, in fact, you know, most people who spread the flu are sick when they spread it. So, in fact, you know, if you focus on sick people, you can contain the infection. That obviously is different from COVID, where healthy people. People who don't have symptoms can spread the virus effectively and spread it probably most efficiently before they develop symptoms. So that was something we didn't know. What we should have done was really try to limit infections in that window until we had the vaccine and then were much more effective, particularly in protecting the elderly. That is the most at-risk population. We did a good job of getting them vaccinated initially, which worked for a while. And now we're seeing the immunity wane and we're trying to get them all, you know, boosted. But in Michigan, you know, we basically tied everybody down. We did not look at who was at risk. We tried to take it for much longer than than we could. And then we just let everybody go and the population wasn't protected. So, in fact, again, we should have made this a bridge. We should have understood and told people this won't go on forever. You know, you shouldn't feel like it's going on forever, but you need to get vaccinated. I mean, you know, it, all all pandemics come to an end. I mean, there would be no human race if right. it were that true, but... I think what we have right now is the ability to end it without the death and without the suffering that's always happened Yeah, it,
0: Right, and so it's going to end. If it rips through, it kills everybody, it's going to kill. Everybody else would have the antibodies and would be recovered, and it will be over. Pretty horrible way to do things. But I want to talk about the vaccine and effectiveness in, in a minute, but it almost sounds like, you know, like in that first wave, If we would have kept the schools open, let the kids get the natural immunity, that may have been better because I think the theory at the time was don't let that 11-year-old get infected because they're going to go to a household, that they're going to spread it in the household to a more vulnerable person. So it's it's a tough call.
1: Yeah, I think think the one thing we should have done was um, look at what were the most crucial activities to continue, to make sure that people could deal with this. I think by shutting everything down, I mean, not allowing people to even buy nails to put their roof back on. I'm not quite sure what that was about. But, you know, looking at things that were most likely to spread, particularly to the vulnerable, and things that really made lives miserable and untenable. And I think the school situation in many places was that. If we could have managed that And gotten people more buy in to wait and get to the point where they were vaccinated and then convince them to be vaccinated more. I think overall we would have done, we've gotten more buy in and we would have ended this more effectively.
0: Michigan's population and others were exposed, and you'd think that places like California and Australia would have learned from this, you know, where this all gets tied up in the politics versus, you know, what is the actual state of the the scientific discovery? And I actually talked about this on one of my editorial programs, that we've put our leaders in a position where they can't say, I don't know. right, And they can't say, I've got new information. We had Matt Taibbi on a related topic saying, yeah, they get the narrative and he said they have to defend it like the Alamo even when other information's coming in. And we can't do that because, again, not a scientist, not a clinical person, but my understanding that we're always adding to the body of knowledge.
1: Well, it, it's a total moving target with this. You know, yeah, This is a different type of infection than we've ever dealt with before um, in terms of how it's spread. You know, the fact that you have non... Symptomatic people spreading it. The fact that that um, you know the efficiency of spread is much higher than other uh, mm-hmm. respiratory diseases. I think. I think the other thing that's you know we're finally getting to a point where they have to say this is potentially a concern. It's not for panic, but it is for thought, and we may find out. So with the Omicron. Finally, people are saying, well, we don't quite know. And the minute it was identified and found out they have a lot of mutations or a lot of changes in the virus that made us concerned that it might be either worse or more easily transmitted or escape immunity that we already have, people at least said, we don't know this yet. And we're waiting for the info. And before we do anything, you know, it was fascinating because you got two different threads, and finally, I think the government came out and said this is something for concern but not panic, which should have been the way things were communicated all along. Um, and then you still had people, media outlets, that were saying, you know, oh, this is a disaster. You know, that's their is- narrative. Yeah, yeah, and and you know, it, stoking fear as a way to increase viewership, which is awful. And that's what's really put, you know, um, politicians, decision makers on edge because they look like they're behind the curve compared to what's being said on the news. And so I think I think that um, we should have understood that we didn't know everything about this. We learned fairly quickly And because of that, at times, we seem to be reversing ourselves because we got new knowledge.
0: I remember when we talked early on and and the first response was we need two weeks to bend the curve, let the health systems come up to capacity. And remember, there were extraordinary measures to add beds and build ventilators that we find out didn't work and getting personal protective equipment in. And I'm thinking, okay, the health system will figure this out. There'll, there'll be a treatment. People that get sick will get treated and many yeah, will we survive. We won't
1: overwhelm the hospitals and we'll be able to move to a more normal life.
0: Exactly. And I know there was early on, people were talking about a vaccine, but of course the vaccines were developed in record time, piggybacking on some other technology that you've explained. And I think your educating of me made me comfortable getting the vaccinations. I thought on the balance in my own personal experience, that people of my age that suffered an infection, it was a miserable two weeks or more, and a fellow that I knew just passed away from it. And those people that got the vaccine, it might have felt bad for a day or two, but they didn't get real sick. But I don't know if my personal experience is really indicative of what we've learned. I know there have been breakthrough symptomatic infections. I have known several people, and I'm sure everybody does. And that the thought that those cases are less severe because they've had the vaccination. How does that work exactly? First of all, is that true? And how does that work? It doesn't stop the disease, but it made it easier.
1: So this is a very interesting infection because it infects your respiratory tract. And unlike original SARS, which only infected your lower respiratory tract, this infects the upper respiratory tract as well. So, in fact, that's what makes it so contagious. Your symptoms don't come, you know, your, your bad symptoms don't come from the, the upper airway. That's how you spread it. They come from lower airway. So, in fact, we now know that there are genetic tendencies in people whose immune systems either don't work quite right or, or work in a way that's uh, causing actual damage on the infection. Are the ones that get really sick and die, and we don't know how to protect those people yet. You know, if we could, you know, it would be easier because you could tell people whether they absolutely had to get the vaccine or not. But what we currently know is that if you have some immunity, all these things sort of play out. So in fact, you may have an infection. And and in fact, we can now tell you have an infection because we have these sensitive tests, mm-hmm. but it's not going to make you ill. The real, I think, frustrating thing is that people look at this and think that the infection is a better vaccine than the vaccine. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you always have to compare the two. And I'm happy to compare, you know, getting actually infected versus the vaccine, because we now know, we've given this vaccine to hundreds of millions of people, we now know essentially every adverse event that can happen. So in fact, yes, most people get aches and pains, maybe they get a low grade fever, it lasts for a few days, but it resolves. There's almost no one who gets chronic disease from the vaccine. So that's really good. The protection is very good. You're 90 plus percent less likely to be in the hospital or be in the ICU or die. So in fact, that's all a good risk-benefit relationship. The worst side effect is this myocarditis, which is seen in young people, and severe myocarditis is seen in 1 in 100,000 young people who get the vaccine, and it's treatable. Now let's look at the infection. It always, you know, relates to your age, but if you're over 50, you know, that's where it really hits you. And a third of those people get severe symptomatic infections, and about one out of six has the potential for winding up in the hospital. If you look at it, you know, one out of every 100 people who's over 65 in this country have been killed by this disease. This infection has killed them. So if you think about 1 in 100 dying from it in the unvaccinated population versus essentially 1 in 10,000 dying if you're vaccinated, that's a risk-benefit ratio that's way towards the vaccine. Even if you're younger and you, you have a lesser likelihood of dying if you're below 50, you can develop chronic covid you're much more likely to develop myocarditis or inflammation of the brain from the infection than you would ever be from the vaccine. So if you look at the risk-benefit ratio, it's way towards the vaccine. And that's what people have to remember. It's not the vaccine versus nothing. It's the vaccine versus the infection because everybody's going to be infected sooner or later. Yeah, in and our
0: vaccine. I want to talk about that because I get mail and people send me things and one of the things they've said well this myocardia
1: myocarditis
0: myocarditis, that it is chronic bleeding i had a gentleman send me something saying well these vaccines they make you have small internal bleeds and every time you get another shot you're getting one and it's a way to depopulate the world just telling you what has been passed on and then folks that say well if i get it I'm only going to have a, a mild case, and so I'll run the risk of having the mild case. Why is it that we can't quantify and get a common understanding about adverse events versus the risk? As you know, the Internet is full of stories. Yes, There are organizations that are publishing saying that the tons of vaccine injury and such, people are very locked into their position. I don't know enough about science or clinical practice to say they're right or wrong. But how do we talk to people about that to say, yeah, you've got a valid concern. Statistically, it's low. Science doesn't make sense. You don't have any concern or something else. How do we bring this debate to a place that everybody can agree?
1: Well, you know, the bottom line is we have data now. I mean, I could argue it theoretically, but I just go to the data. And, you know, the problem is that people... People are misrepresenting the data. Every time someone dies, they're assuming that it's related to either the vaccine mm-hmm. or the virus. Neither of those is true. And in fact, they go to the, we have a, a system in the U.S. called VAERS, and it's a reporting system for potential Issues that occur after That's, vaccination.
0: Uh, it's an acronym. Vex-
1: vaccine Adverse uh, Events Repository.
0: Right. And and people can find this on the internet, yeah. on the phone.
1: But what that is, is every doctor who has someone who's gotten the vaccine and had some type of adverse event reports it. So, in fact, early on, we were immunizing people in hospice, mm-hmm. right? Because yes, we wanted yes. to protect them from getting infected. Guess what? A lot of those people died after they got the vaccine.
0: (laughs) You don't say they were in hospice and they died.
1: The problem was they weren't dying from the vaccine. And in fact, they've now looked at the death rate in people who get the vaccine by age group versus the death rate for people that have not been vaccinated. And voila, the death rate is actually lower, much lower in people who get the vaccine because they aren't dying of COVID. Mm-hmm. And all the other things they're dying from are all the same. So, in fact, you need to understand what this data shows. Just because people say, well, people died after the vaccine. They died after the vaccine, but they did not die from the vaccine.
0: Well, I know a particular case that the person my age died and said, well, he, he got the, his second shot and didn't want to take it. And that's what killed him. And I said, well, the, no, what it really means, and he died of COVID and, you know, clear case, patholog, you know, pathological confirmation and, and everything. And I said, no, he, he wasn't vaccinated because if he had just gotten the shot, it, it's you're still inside the window. And, and chances are he probably was already infected before we started the vaccination regimen. And so the vaccine effectiveness versus adverse events, we think the, the science is, is fairly solid.
1: Oh, it's totally solid.
0: I've been watching the numbers, and it's clear to me the vaccines have an effect. And even with the people that have an infection after being vaccinated, they seem to have an easier time of it. Okay, they get sick, okay, but they're not dying and not going on
1: ventilation. It's a range. And you know, if you look at, you know, there's a distribution, You know, if you get infected after you've gotten the vaccine, overall, you're much less likely to get ill to have at all, to have severe illness, or to be hospitalized or die. Mm -hmm. You know, those numbers are totally clear. And the side effects are totally clear, too. I mean, we've done hundreds of millions of people now. We know the outcome. If there was some small subgroup that was a problem, we'd find out. Look at the other vaccines. Look at the Johnson Johnson vaccine, the AstraZeneca vaccine, the rare blood clotting problem that they saw. That was less than 100,000, but they picked it up because there were so many people being immunized. Mm -hmm. We aren't seeing that with the mRNA vaccine. So in fact, they're the most effective and the safest by far. That's what people should be getting. We need to make them available to folks.
0: Will will there be long-term studies on these, you know, vaccines where it may or may not have anything to do with the, the specific virus? But, you know, I, I mean, I'm curious, like, five years out, did this thing make any change to me, you know, pro or
1: con? Absolutely. I mean, that's required. Long-term, they call them phase four trials because they're after the approval. And you want to look not just at adverse events, but the immunity. See how long that lasts. Mm-hmm. See how long the, that, the circuits of protection that you find in the immune system lasts. Those are things that we have no idea of. You know, people said, oh, you told us you only needed th- two shots and now you need a third. Well, those those shots do different things. And what we now know is that having them two, uh, four weeks or three weeks apart as we initially did were good for getting people initially immunized, but they weren't good for persistence of the immunity. And that booster is really what gives us the persistence and the depth of immunity, because we've allowed the immune system sort of to go to sleep for a few months, and we've reawakened it with that booster shot, and that causes a much deeper immune response. The immune system has sort of a a short attention span, like a book that way. <laughs> Okay. So if you only activate... Sounds like
0: Made in America. A oh yes, short attention yes, span. Yeah,
1: you know, the news, right? right <laughs> the right. News cycle. So if you only ting it a couple of times, it actually is a protective mechanism, doesn't get that excited. Because if it gets too excited, you know, it, it you can't do that with everything. You mm-hmm. don't want to respond that way to everything. But if it sees it later... The memory immune response comes up and says, hmm, I'm seeing this again. This is a real problem. We need to harness all the troops to protect you from it. So, in fact, those three doses are very different. Um, I think it's very reassuring that now we have Omicron, which is a, a real variant, you know, in terms of the number of mm-hmm. mutations, and we're still able to provide protection with it. Somebody from the percent protection without the booster, and probably over 90 percent protection from serious illness with it. So in fact, when people say, am I going to continue to get boosters all the time? My guess is not, number one. And my guess is that with this particular virus, and we could talk about why that is, but with this virus, if it mutates too much, you're likely to get something that's less infective and less dangerous than what we
0: have now. When I understand a little bit about the antibodies, and you know, prior to my booster, um, actually during my regular physical, I said, can you test my uh, antibodies? And they they said, well, okay, no one's ever asked us to do that, but they put the test through and it came You're back. You're
1: a very persuasive guy.
0: Yeah, well <laughs> I, I, I kind of gnawed at him for a little bit. <laughs> so and and it, it came back uh, basically like, yeah, you, you, you've you got antibodies. And I'm like, well, how many do I have? You know, because I was curious to say if I had this level, you know, pre-booster, did it go here? And, you know, that's what I wanted to know. So I found it curious that if we don't know how many antibodies we need to protect it, and this is the first time I've heard this explanation about there being a deeper part of the immune system, um, like, wouldn't it make sense to like, let's, if your antibodies fall below this, we need to boost you, versus just shooting up everybody?
1: So, you know, the, this is a very important question. Um, eventually, we may come out with certain guidelines that tell us whether or not people remain protective. Antibody alone doesn't tell us that, because the long-term immunity is from cellular immunity. And I think that's why, you know, the first reports we got out about Omicron was that people after two shots had no remaining immunity against Omicron, whereas when they actually looked at who got sick, there was 70% protection in people that, you know, had been vaccinated. The real key with this is that everybody's immune system is different, Mm -hmm. you know, and people don't don't understand that, you know, because they say, well, all these people have brown eyes or brown hair, these people have blonde hair. The immune system, though, is the only thing that's truly unique between every individual. And that's why we can't transplant organs into other people. Your immune system recognizes yourself versus non-self, and it recognizes you versus other people. And that was very important evolutionarily, because Otherwise, you know, mothers would never be able to have babies because, you know, the baby would become part of the mother. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there are certain reasons why we have to tell self from non-self. What, what's happened now is that we know that there are certain people who even with the vaccine, despite having normal immunity, don't seem protected. You know, it's about 3 to 5%. There are also people who have very little antibody, but when they get rechallenged, seem to be just fine. So in fact, we don't know. These are called correlates of protection. Your antibody titer, a type of cellular immune response, we don't have that nailed yet. It could be that in the future we will, or it could be that humans are just so diverse that we'll never come out with that and we'll have to you know, just have general rules for how to protect folks?
0: Yeah, I'm thinking that you know, if you get a cut from a rusty saw, the first question is is when's your last tetanus yes. shot? So we know that the tetanus is about a 10 year protection cycle. Do you think we'll get to a point where we'll say, well, your coronavirus protection is about seven years, and you need to get boosted? Are we looking at something like
1: that? I, I think we could get to that point. Yeah, I I, I would hope. That what happens is that the thing just burns out and we don't have to get to that mm-hmm. point. But you know, if it becomes endemic, if people continue to be infected, eventually, yeah, we're going to know that after three or four years, you know, there's a higher risk of getting reinfected, and you need to get a booster shot. So, in fact, those are the things that that we still don't know that they're going to monitor people for, you know, after they get. You know their, their immunity after they get their vaccine. And over a longer period of time, we're going to know a lot more about this.
0: Well, we've talked earlier today, talked about the end of the pandemic, and then it does burn out. And I think, as you said, all pandemics end. The former president said, well, this is just going to go away one day. Although I don't think he had a sense of time. He, he was Thinking it was days or weeks instead of you know several years. Yeah,
1: I don't think he was getting good advice.
0: No, and there's a lot of issues there. We right. probably better not open that today. But what about the notion of therapeutics? So what I'm imagining is some of my listeners have asked questions like this. So let me see if I can formulate it. We think this is on on the down slope. We think therefore our risk of getting infection is going down, and we're seeing therapeutics. So we think there's still a, a risk of the vaccine for whatever reason, you know, real or imagined. And we don't want to take that. We think there's less risk of infection because we're on the downside. And if I do get it, I've got therapeutic options. Where do we stand now in terms of effective therapies?
1: Well, you know, it's, it's interesting. I thought that the first thing we would get would be effective therapeutics, because right, yeah. you know, it takes less time to develop that than mm-hmm. a vaccine. But, you know, this virus is, is a single-stranded RNA virus. It's sort of a rogue virus. And, you know, we weren't able to find anything that worked in the short term. We're now getting therapeutics that seem like they're pretty effective. If you're unvaccinated with the Pfizer therapeutic, you have a 90% reduction in mortality. Oh. So that, that's an impressive thing. But... You have to get that early on in the course of the disease. If you wait after three or four days, it's not effective because you're making all the virus. Your body's been turned into a virus factory, and these drugs you know are like uh you know uh, trying to put out a fire uh, fire with a garden hose. It's just not enough. You
0: can put out a little fire, it can't put it, it. Can't put And out is the fire. Pfizer a monoclonal antibody? No, no, what no. what is a monoclonal antibody?
1: So so first the Pfizer is a small molecule drug that screws up the ability of the virus to replicate itself. I see. So in fact you're actually blocking the virus replication. For a long enough time that your immune system can mount a response and start clearing the virus. I see. Okay. Okay. So that's that's really, you know, you could give a small molecule drug like this to someone that doesn't have an immune system. It wouldn't matter because sooner or later you have to stop the drug. And at that point, the virus comes roaring back Mm -hmm. because you haven't cleared it. Monoclonal antibodies are a little bit different. They're proteins. They aren't small molecules. And they're proteins that are designed to bind to the virus and wake up your immune system to clear it more effectively. So, in fact, by binding to the virus, by preventing it from affecting your cells, by getting your immune system to attack it, you're in a much better position to overcome it we have people, it's particularly useful for people that have immune problems. So if you don't make antibodies, even Mm -hmm. when you get the vaccine, you can give them these monoclonals. They sort of start the cellular immunity to clear the virus, and you can hang in there long enough to clear it. But if you don't have any immune system, the monoclonal antibodies aren't going to help either.
0: Well, early on in the pandemic, Uh, Rob Casloo, who is a senior executive with the Trinity system, has several states' responsibility, said this virus loves weakness. Yes. And it, it attacks, you know, weak immune systems. We know there's a correlation with obesity. There's a correlation with asthma. There's a correlation with other diseases. And I think there was a study recently, I don't think it was peer reviewed, but that the virus can attach to a fat cell somehow if we were going to advise our listeners and viewers about care for their health, you know, we obviously you know, don't smoke. What do we know about the potential benefits of just better health against this virus itself?
1: So, you know, obviously if you're in better physical condition, you're more likely to be able to tolerate the stress induced by the viral Mm -hmm. infection in general, your heart and lungs are in better shape, you know, even though you, you might have to fight it, you know, and, and really clear a lot from your lungs, if you're in good shape, you can do that. The specific things, why obese people have trouble, why people that have hypertension have trouble, we don't understand that quite yet. And, you know, this one paper suggested infects fat cells. Well, yeah, but how does infecting fat cells You know, make it more deadly to someone who's obese. That, you know, leap of faith, we don't know. They think they're making more virus, not clear to me at all. So, in fact, this is one of the things we really need to understand better the physiology of this infection. So, we can give people better advice for what they could do just with lifestyle and other things to help protect themselves. But it's not going to do away with the vaccines. You know, the vaccines are much more effective than any lifestyle change. And in fact, you know, one of the problems is it's not even consistent. You mentioned asthma. A lot of asthmatics have no trouble with this at all, and a few do. So the real question is, what's the difference in those populations that we have not found out those things?
0: Yeah, And and it was a heroic effort to get the vaccines out. and, And, you know, now I'm glad to hear that it's, you know, settling down enough where, it can be studied in the phase four trials and such. So we can get on the other side of this. You know, look, we're going back to sporting events. i you know, big hockey fan. I've been to the Little Caesars Arena several times since that. And they're doing a few things now, like cashless transactions. And
1: Well, I have to mention, of course, I was at the Michigan-Ohio State game this year. Yes. For- we had we had a very positive event here in the
0: United. indeed we did it. I was there as well, and we didn't have a big outbreak after that. You know, the, it might have this, been too cold for that the virus. Snow yeah, yeah. The uh, and <laughs> the
1: and the wind, you know, dispersed the aerosols. I think. Yeah. So we do
0: believe, right now, if if, if I'm not mistaken, that being outside in the fresh air, there's been basically no outdoor transmission. At two years into this,
1: it, it's pretty limited. That's for sure. It's it's an unusual situation if you're outside and and get transmission.
0: Remember the beginning of this, we had portly security people chasing a lone, lean jogger down the beaches in California. It made great video, but I, I'm like, yeah, really, that's that doesn't seem like it's the problem. We are getting more places that are asking for you know vaccine passports, and I'm personally opposed to them. Although I am vaccinated. And I have confidence in my vaccine that it's going to protect me. And so would I knowingly have someone cough in my face that had an active infection? Absolutely not. But it doesn't trouble me to be around unvaccinated people. Shouldn't we all be thinking that way? If you've got the vaccination, you're kind of good to go?
1: I think most people do. You know, I think, I think, you know, in a larger sense, one of the biggest concerns I have about, you know, what this has brought out is how ineffective we are for communicating medical information oh yes i mean this is this is an embarrassment to me as a physician that i can't get people to understand reality versus you know noise that i can't people get people to understand the basics of how a vaccine present, prevents Disease versus a small molecule or an antibody mm-hmm. therapeutic that we can't get people to understand when they're really at risk versus not. And I think that one of the biggest failures I've seen through all of this has been the ineffective public health communication. Amen. Yeah you know, the the fact that people have said things in not just where were wrong but in ways that were hard to understand. People were not able to get up and say. This is what's happening. And, you know, having someone who's sort of a talking head get up and and ramble off statistics or things, that's not really a way to get people to understand. We needed someone who could get up there and show pictures and explain this in a way to put podcasts, to put videos that explain this to people in a way that was persuasive. As persuasive as, unfortunately, all the videos and other stuff, that's bad and wrong. But it's very effective communication.
0: I believe that your blog, Pandemic Pondering, is so powerful. I think every one of my listeners, every one of my viewers should be on Pandemic Pondering. You go to the bottom, you get subscription, and then when you publish a new piece, you get it in your email. Because most of us don't have the foundational science education. And when I look at a lot of the the panic and the reason and you can influence people by pushing them one way or the other, th- that most of us don't have the foundational science education. we need to do a better job educating our kids in elementary school and in high school and you know in the in the universities and as an internal optimist, I hope that we do more of that. Let's get to basics like sciences and mathematics and communication because a population that doesn't have that education they hear one statistic or one one anecdote and they think that's the whole world versus well wait a minute you know like like i hear oh monoclonal antibodies my first reaction is okay sounds good what is it and i don't have a basis in it i don't know how it works or anything so th- this kind of dialogue i think is really important but the big players don't do it yeah
1: I actually started the blog because people kept calling me, oh, and is asking me right? questions. <laughs> yeah, and, and you know, I mean, a lot of them were friends, but almost all of them were people that were not scientifically educated in medicine mm-hmm. and had heard things. And it just struck me early on that there was so mis, com- so much miscommunication out there. Initially, I think a lot of it was just out of fear, but you know, now I think a lot of it is purposeful for whatever reason. Yes, But, um, you know, I, I decided to write a blog where we explain the science in a way that regular people can understand it. And once they're sort of protected with that knowledge, they're much more resistant to some of the stuff that, that seems persuasive, but is totally crazy.
0: Well, and one of the many things I like about your blog is that you don't have a dog in the fight. You're a independent researcher you've been at it a long time you were practicing gain of function years ago when you were with the army it was was the army right not military i
1: was in the army but we weren't doing gain of function
0: okay all right i
1: don't don't tell them that
0: all right but you knew what it was but i asked you on a prior event no
1: question i know what it is Yes,
0: indeed so um you see how i fumbled that again i'm the lay person here It's those kinds of things, and you've done a great job of boiling things down. There's other people, I, I particularly like Martin Koldorf, the great Barrington Declaration, who was a early guest on the Common Bridge and also took this from a public health standpoint and said, look, what we're doing doesn't make any sense for public health. He talked about measuring the other effects, mental health and education and all these things that we are now seeing develop. And in the school systems, I'm close to several schools and they're telling me they've got kids that are going to high school and, like, I've got three freshman classes. They don't know how to be in high school. And all that damage that we're going to have to sort out.
1: And, and you know, I, I think what they've done is they've condensed the curriculum uh, because it's very hard to deliver it, you know, over video. Yes. And all the things that we're talking about, you know, the the biology classes, the health classes, You know, those are very hard to teach when you are. You know, I mean, a virtual frog makes for a very difficult (laughs) dissection. So I think I think that we need to go back in person because they they're losing out on this.
0: Hey, I wish I would have paid more attention in science class. I'm sorry, Mr. Wilson. I would have been a better student. But I wouldn't. Never mind, Dr. Baker. When you think about some of that reporting, are there any? good examples you know, what's been the most egregious reporting or maybe what you've read and said, oh, you know what, that was a good job they did. Is there anything that pops to mind on either one of those fronts?
1: Yeah. You know, I mean, um, it's it's amazing to me how how twisted the anti-vaccine community has become. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I obviously disclosure's sake, I ran vaccines at Merck for a period of time. It's a great credential. And, and, you know, we were able to get uh, Gardasil, you know, the HPV vaccine. It's now basically done away with cervical cancer in young women. I mean, it's an incredible accomplishment. But, you know, we saw people pushing back saying that it had all kinds of side effects which weren't true. And they become even more fortified with this. And Robert Kennedy is really... I mean, it's almost an industry for him now to be anti-vax. Oh
0: yes, indeed.
1: And and that's really one of my biggest concerns because it's just reinforced this. I mean, he's out there telling people not to get measles vaccine. Yeah, well, there's get-
0: a lot of that, and there's people losing their jobs because of mandates. And again, I believe that people get, should get to make their own decisions, but at least make an informed decision, and and uh, not listen to you know somebody that's got an agenda. And again, as Matt Tavey said, they've got a narrative. They're defending it like the Alamo. Right. You've been, again, very generous with your time. Is there anything that we didn't cover today that maybe we should have talked about or anything you'd like the audience to hear?
1: I, I think we've covered most things. If there's one thought I want to leave with the audience is that this won't last forever. Yeah, We are in the throes of the recovery you know, we're going to see lips and, you know, people going, you know, getting upset because there's a new virus or this. But in fact, we're on the downslope. We're in a much better position than we were in, you know, a year and a half ago. We have effective vaccines. We have effective drugs. We just need to get people to use them. And, sooner or later, this will end. I really think that within six months, you know, not not just turning the corner, but basically opening the door and being able to go out.
0: I certainly hope that's true. And, you know, we've all faced that, you know, this year, 2021, there's been more deaths in the United States. And I don't know that anybody, let me rephrase this, I don't know that any thinking person thought that the people running for president were going to stop this thing in their tracks, despite their their promises to do just that. I think we are making reasonable progress at great cost, both from the disease and from the effects of the public health policies. I want you to only make me one promise that you'll at least come back one more time when this is over so that we can talk about what happened.
1: I would be happy to do that.
0: <laughs> That'll be great. This is Rich Helpy on the Common Bridge with our guest today, Dr. James Baker of the University of Michigan. He's an immunologist. He's a researcher. He's a physician. Please look at his entire biography at richardhelpe.com. This is Dr. Baker's fourth appearance with us on the Common Bridge. So please, if you want more background, go to the prior podcast and YouTube TV. This is Rich Helpy signing off on the Common Bridge. Thanks for joining us on the Common Bridge. Remember to rate us, review us, and comment about what you heard today, and recommend us to your friends. Visit us at richardhelpy.com and sign up for special promotions. This broadcast was produced by Stunt3 Multimedia and is available on YouTube and all podcast directories. All
1: rights are reserved by Richard Helpy.